biosecurity on your premises will never be the same every day because risks risk will change um, and shift throughout the year. Obviously, um, risk will change because of diseases that are existent in your flock. Risk will change with visitors. <laughs> risk will change um, with new employees, and so understanding and being aware of that risk every day is as important as having a plan because if the plan doesn't address the risk, there's no plan. A whole new era of communication in the poultry industry is coming soon. The brightest minds of the global poultry industry will be right in your pocket. And what's best, you can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good and it's never been this simple. The Poultry Podcast Show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like DSM, helping customers with efficient and sustainable poultry production. AB Vista offers pioneering products and technical services tailored to the poultry industry to help them succeed. At JBI, we apply biosecurity innovation and expertise to keep your operations safe. AX3 Digest is a highly digestible source of protein with a low level of potassium, giving young animals a healthy start. Adiseo provides nutritional solutions and services to help producers achieve their targets in high-quality, safe, and sustainable ways. Hello and welcome. I'm Kate Malash, your host for this episode of the Poultry Podcast Show. Joining us today is our guest, Abby Schuft, a full-time extension educator in the Department of Animal Science in the College of Food, Agriculture, and Natural Resource Sciences at the University of Minnesota. Abby joined University of Minnesota Extension Services in 2013 after a decade of experience in agriculture. In 2016, she began her current role as a poultry extension educator, where her professional interests are related to biosecurity and emergency preparedness. Her programming focus is educating poultry producers and backyard poultry owners about applied biosecurity, Danish entry requirements, and required NPIP biosecurity plan auditing. She is heavily involved in the development of innovative biosecurity outreach tools, as well as curriculum for undergraduate and graduate courses at the University of Minnesota. Additionally, she contributes to the Secure Poultry Supply Programs team as an outreach and teaching specialist. Currently, she is also a PhD candidate in the Department of Animal Science, where she anticipates completing her doctoral studies this year. Welcome to soon-to-be doctor, Abby Schuft. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. Absolutely. We're really glad to have you. Um, before we jump into our, our discussion today, can you tell us a little bit more about your background and what really drew you to become an extension specialist at University of Minnesota and then specifically for poultry? Actually, horses are what oh, brought okay. me into agriculture. Um, Interesting. I grew up riding and showing horses and um, being involved in FFA uh, actually brought me to the University of Minnesota campus often for our contests and uh, leadership um, retreats and things like that. So I was very comfortable with the University of Minnesota. So I chose to do my undergraduate work there. Mm -hmm. um, being then around all of the other kids who grew up in agriculture in Minnesota and our surrounding states specifically um, really introduced me to agriculture. Um, and so I knew that's where I wanted to be. Um, because mm -hmm. we need oats and we need hay to feed our horses yes. and we need corn. So I understood the value of agriculture and obviously what it, it nourishes our bodies every day. It nourishes our horses' bodies um, and then and what the care it takes to take care of those animals um, and the production systems involved. Um, so that's why I wanted to get into agriculture. Um, 
my interest in emergency management and emergency preparedness um, essentially came through experiences I had with the horses uh, personally. Um, and then um, that's actually what led me into extension. Um, I experienced um, a large scale barn fire with a horse farm that I was um, and I was able afterwards was able to collaborate with um, some USDA field veterinarians as well as the extension horse specialist at the University of Minnesota to help teach first responders about handling animals. Um, because as we know, St. Paul is home to the University of Minnesota's agriculture campus. Um, we're also butt up to the Minnesota State Fairgrounds and the responding fire department for the state fairgrounds and the campus is in St. Paul. <laughs> and those aren't necessarily people who have an, large animal experience. So we were able to teach those um, first responders about how to handle live animal or large animal emergencies. Um, so that was my introduction into extension. And um, I was like, yes, this is the place for me. Um, I like teaching and I like teaching the adult audiences. Um, obviously now in my role, I've shifted to do a lot of 4-H programming. So our, our youth development programming, as well as the undergraduate and graduate studies. Um, but what specifically brought me to poultry was the 2015 outbreak of highly pathogenic avian influenza. Um, the position that I hold now was created as a result of that outbreak. Um, knowing there's some gaps between our producers and what they could apply as far as the science that we all knew at the university, but how is it getting to our producers? Um, and then vice versa, um, what are regulators and our responding agencies? Um, there's some gaps there between them and the producers. So um, I've been able to learn a lot about the poultry industry, um, the passion that everybody has, whether they're a small flock and a backyard owner or a commercial producer, um, and how we all want the best um, for the welfare of the animals, the welfare of the people raising them, um, so that we can all have a great product to enjoy. Um, I'm having a chicken barbecue pizza for lunch, actually. <laughs> um, well, and we can't awesome. do that. Thank you for your support of the poultry industry. <laughs> <laughs> and we, I mean, we can't enjoy those things, right, without a healthy industry. Um, so uh, I've jumped right in and um, have had a lot of experience previous to 2000. Uh, 22 and our spring outbreaks. And now, of course, we are still in an HPA outbreak. So. Yes. Uh, unfortunately, it seems like we've just gotten right back into it for the fall. Um, can you tell us a few more details about your experience in extension working with the industry through these outbreaks? And, you know, especially if you've seen, you know, major changes from that disastrous outbreak in 2015 up until now, I know a lot of things have changed and things are going much more smoothly. If you could speak to some of the programs that were put in place that helped with that, that would be great. There is so much growth industry-wide around biosecurity concepts as a, in general, as a whole. Um, the largest of that being the MPIP biosecurity plan audit, which is required for those commercial operations. Um, and I was asked by the Minnesota Board of Animal Health, specifically for the state of Minnesota, to help with the outreach, to help producers 
um, learn about what this actually meant for them to write these biosecurity plans and to help them write these biosecurity plans. Um, they are not writers by profession <laughs> or by choice. Usually, you know, there there are farmers. They are outside every day in those barns and they're managing animals. They're managing equipment. They're managing feed systems, etc. So, um, to help them write their biosecurity plans, um, that's probably been the biggest shift since the 2014-15 outbreak um, and that understanding of biosecurity. Then to add like an extra layer onto that was um, how those farm owners can train their employees. Again, they're not necessarily educators by choice, um, but now they're being forced to be teaching their employees um, about their biosecurity plans, about why the protocols are in place that they have for each specific farm. Um, so the industry is really growing um, because of those requirements for that biosecurity plan audit, um, but they're, they're growing professionally also by being able to explain to their family and their employees um, why they have the protocols in place and what the protocols are. Um, and, and that, that, that's been a fun shift to see actually. Um, obviously my job, my current job now came about after the 14, 15 outbreak. So essentially I've been preparing, uh, for the next outbreak, which then did occur this spring. Um, and, um, to summarize what I've been doing is mostly, like I said in the introduction, is sort of being that translator uh, between of the science um, with composting um, the carcasses and the mortalities, um, and and being that translator for our producers, um, helping our regulators reach the audiences that they don't have a direct access to, and in Minnesota that happens to be our backyard flock owners, um, which were impacted greatly this year as opposed to the 2015 outbreak in Minnesota where we only had one small flock. Um, and so trying to be that go-between, that trusted source that people know they can come to, um, being approachable, um, helping the rest of Extension get the messages out. Um, my role in Extension is not specific to 4-H and youth development, but we have a large poultry 4-H program in the state. So making sure that those 4-H families also get the same information that our commercial producers are receiving. Um, so trying to be that liaison between regulators and producers of any size, uh, that's been my primary role. Excellent. When it comes to translating that science particularly because you are talking about an audience that ranges from, you know, kids in 4-H all the way to, you know, backyard producers, undergraduates, grad students, and then professionals in the industry. How do you go about translating that science and making it approachable and accessible for people at all these different levels? There's lots of versions of everything. <laughs> um, you know, we, we, wanna, we want to spread the basic message of biosecurity that you can prevent a lot of introduction of, of any disease, not just HPAI. Mm -hmm. um, so that's like the basic message. And then depending on the audience, then we can build upon that. Um, there is a course that we teach at the university, um, which is a professional level course. And most recently we have um, industry professionals taking the course and it's strictly about biosecurity. So they get 13 weeks of solid poultry biosecurity. 
Well, they're already in the industry. They know the basics. They know what a Danish entry is. They know that they need to wash their hands. They need to change their clothes. They need to change boots and disinfect boots, things like that. They know those things already because they're doing it every day. But can we take it to a deeper level? Um, what does it mean when we have visitors on site? What does it mean to audit their on-farm practices um, are their employees doing it? How can they tr better train their employees? So we can just take it a, a, a step deeper, depending on the audience. Um, of course, the pandemic shifted things. Um, our in-person programming everywhere, obviously, was shifted to virtual. Um, so we were trying to be really creative on how we could um, teach, continue to teach biosecurity, even though we were living it in our human personal lives every day. Um, so we kind of created a kit that could be mailed to um, our turkey producers, for example, in Minnesota. Um, they had like a science mailed kit that they could play um, a simulation game using candies, colored candies. Um, to demonstrate biosecurity. And some of them played it with their families and their young kids. Others took it to the farm workshop and played it with their um, employees just to keep biosecurity relevant. And we were in a peace time during that time. So trying to still demonstrate how particle, disease particles could potentially transfer um, was still important. Um, even though we were dealing with the pandemic and, and the coronavirus already, um, we still had to remind them. Poultry diseases are still out and about. We need to be able to take those precautions. We're still thinking about you. Here's a tool that you can use um, at your own leisure at home and on your own time. So um, there's we just have to tweak a lot of things, by but still sending the basic messages, tweaking to make it audience appropriate. You know, with the 4-H kids, um, we actually have biosecurity programming developed for nine different livestock species that are popular in Minnesota. Um, so making it species specific, there's obviously things in the cattle industry that aren't going to translate well for the poultry or the swine industries and vice versa. Um, same with llamas or uh, rabbits. <laughs> there's, diff there's different things. There's different production styles and way that those animals are raised. So just making it pertinent to each specific audience while still keeping that basic message um, is what's super important for me in extension programming. Mm -hmm. So I imagine along those lines, you're probably recovering from the great Minnesota get together, uh, which would have just ended last weekend. Yes. Yep. Yes. Uh, were you able to do, you know, extension outreach in the, in the poultry barn there? I know it's a huge attraction. One of my favorite things about the fair. Um, I actually, I didn't have involvement directly with the poultry. Um, we were helping with some rabbit biosecurity um, items and some outreach prior to the fair. And as the open class show began at the fair um, and uh, our, actually, our first high path case was announced during our state fair. Mm. So there were some questions that we need to answer, um, especially for those people that had birds that were exhibiting at the fair. Um, but the Board of Animal Health, we turned to to really handle that because they are the regulating agency. Um, we were just there to be able to provide some support and, and answer some additional questions. Um, as a side note, I get to judge 4-H projects at the oh, state excellent. fair. So sometimes they're poultry related, sometimes they're not. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Really tough, hard-hitting question. What is your favorite state fair food? 
Oh gosh. Yeah. That's a tough um, one. So historically being a native Minnesotan, it's the fried cheese curds. Um, if, because you just, with the exception of my homemade ones, which I don't make often because they're a lot of work, um, nothing else compares. Um, but I am also very partial to the turkey to go sandwich because you sort of feel like you're eating something healthy. Yes. I'm a huge fan of the Minnesota turkey growers turkey leg. Of course. Okay. That yep. thing is a gigantic meal. You got to plan around it. Uh, and then the mini donuts, of course. Yes. Oh, yes. Okay. Mini donuts. Yep. Forgot about if that. If you can't tell, I'm a little homesick. <laughs> <laughs> but it's good to hear that there was a good experience at the fair. I know it can always be nerve wracking when you're trying to handle, you know, a disease challenge with that many animals coming in from all over the state to a centralized location. So definitely lucky to have you guys there. You mentioned kind of the communication between, you know, the, the state regulatory and the industry and then the backyard producers. What's your role in facilitating that communication and where do you think that could be improved? Um, well, hopefully we're making improvements every time a new communication happens. Um, to be honest, I would say specifically in the poultry species, it really started in 2017 when the Board of Animal Health asked to help asked me to help with the outreach for the biosecurity plans um, because internally they realized their job is not outreach. You know, they were the regulators. They were the ones to be doing the audits. They shouldn't be the ones to also do the outreach and then audit the outreach, if that makes sense. So, um, so that relationship has really been developing truly since 2017 Um but specifically for those backyard producers, I do not personally have chickens at home. Um, it's a professional hazard, <laughs> for as many would say. Um, so I, I don't have birds of my own at home. But I try to stay on touch with kind of what's happening with my friends who have backyard poultry, with um, local feed stores, and what's happening on social media and what's being said. Um, so I try to keep uh, my finger on that um, so that the regulators can officially address some of those questions. Um, for example, um, on social media, a lot of folks will be watching the USDA APHIS website that announces all the new cases of high path. Um, but many will say, oh, it's a non-poultry flock. I'm not worried about it. Well, to me, that says they don't understand the definition USDA's definition of non-poultry. So they're assuming it's wild pheasants or something else, not necessarily what USDA's definition of non-poultry is. So I can bring that back to the regulators. And um, through one of our multiple webinars that we've co-hosted um, to reach that specific audience, then they can address that. Um, so I don't want to say I'm the mediator, but I sort of feel like the mediator. Um, you know, I, the people who work for our regulators and our agencies are still people. They still care about the health and the welfare of the animals. They care about um, the feelings of the owners that are there. But the perception of the owners is that the regulators are not that way, um, but they truly are. And so I, it's sort of my personal mission <laughs> to say, hey, these here are the faces and the people that you will be interacting with. If you have a disease problem with any of your animals, come meet them now. Meet them when you're not having an emergency. Uh, and, and so that you know and you can build those relationships, at least a name and a face. Um, and 
Yeah. And I, cause I think it's helpful. And for me personally, I, I want to know who I'd be dealing with. Should I need that? You know, I know who my insurance agent is, you know, I, <laughs> if, if, and when, you know, we have a tree fall on our house, knock on wood, that never happens, but you know, or, or we have storm damage, you know, I will feel so much comfortable, more comfortable knowing who I'm dealing with because I've already built some sort of a relationship there. So that's one of my goals as an extension educator um, to help bridge that gap too for those small flocks who aren't dealing with the state on a regular basis, but just to say, hey, look, these people are here. They have the information. They are reachable. They are approachable. Um, here's their face and here's what they can do for you. That's a great idea. It's a very tricky dynamic with the backyard producers. There's a lot of misinformation out there on social media. I run across it all the time in the backyard arena. Unfortunately, when we have these disease outbreaks of any kind, I see a lot of backyard producers saying, well, don't tell anyone about it. They're just going to come to populate your flock. And that is the exact opposite of what we want. And yes, it may be the case that for the good of you know, everyone involved, the flock has to be depopulated. But there's also this, you know, need for some empathy on the side of the regulators that these are people's pets. And we're so used to doing population medicine that I think a lot of the conflict occurs where you can't switch that mentality to say, hey, I'm essentially telling someone they have to put their pet down. Yep. Yep. And, and that's exactly it. And I, I absolutely agree with you about the things that you see online. And um, mm -hmm. But on the flip side, then I will generally follow that up with, but if you don't depopulate, they will die on their own anyways. The virus and, and will they take might them hurt with your the neighbors. exception. Yep. And and it will affect your neighbors. And if you have waterfowl, you know, domestic waterfowl that aren't dying, they're likely carriers. So the next chickens or turkeys that you do get are going to become infected again. So it's just going to be a vicious cycle. Um, and they, that's those, some of those are the things that they don't understand also. Um, so just trying to help explain that and just in plain speaking and plain words. Um, and that's one of the biggest goals I have also in extension, you know, I have to take academic speak and, and make it translatable and understandable for a lay audience. Um, and, and hopefully I do a good job at doing that. I think I do. It sounds like it. In your work, do you run into any kind of common misconceptions or kind of old school beliefs that some more recent research or, you know, uh, biosecurity work is called into question? Are you fighting against some of those uh, misconceptions out in the field? And this could be either on the industry side or, or the backyard side, honestly. That's a really great question. I don't know that I've ever thought of that. In my personal life with horses, I do all the time. Mm. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, and I, I think I'm going to pull the naive card here because I wasn't involved in the industry before 2016. Maybe I'm not familiar with what was. I just know what is now. Um, I will say some of the challenge is, especially in promoting and encouraging biosecurity, is a lot of the older and aging um, facilities that might might not have water plumbed in to have like a sink or, or a wash station um, as they enter the barn. They have water, obviously, to water the birds, but they don't have additional plumbing to do that kind of thing. Um, so it kind of changing that mindset of making some capital investments in some premises to improve biosecurity. Um, 
But I don't think that's necessarily been as big of a challenge as people might think. Um, so yeah, I think I'm going to pull that I'm not sure card because I'm I'm not aware enough of the industry prior to when I well, that's started. that's good to hear. I mean, that probably means we've made a, a lot of progress. I think, you know, when I brought that up, I, I was kind of thinking of the thought process or the perception that I see the most often that gets people into trouble is it doesn't matter just this one time. I see that a lot. Um, I can go hunt ducks just this one time and not shower. Yes. Or <laughs> I can run in and change the ventilation settings this one time mm -hmm. and not, you know, switch boots or yeah. Um, yes. Oh, we see that. And I, and I guess that's, um, I think that's going to be a perception that's going to be ages old. Um, and, and I don't think that will go away. Um, uh, but if we can change the culture, uh, maybe it will eventually dissipate. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to circle back to the, the written biosecurity plans. Would you mind going into some more detail about that as far as who is required to have those plans, who should have those plans, even if they're not required? And then what do those usually entail? Uh, so first off, we, I specifically encourage biosecurity plans for any size operation, any size. It's the best management practice. Um, but as far as the MPIP, uh, requirement for an audit biennially, um, so every two years, um, those have different, um, production standards according to the species or the bird being produced. Um, I don't remember all of them offhand, um, but I know like turkey breeders are not required to have the plan, but in Minnesota, because we have such a large industry, our Board of Animal Health and our um, NPIP official state agency has requested that those plans be created just as a um, health insurance, basically, for the rest of the state. Um, so th those numbers can be found on the NPIP website. Um, specifically, I want to say, well, I know game birds are 25,000 birds annually um, because I do a lot of work with game birds, actually. Um, but the others, I know there, I think the broilers are like a hundred thousand annually, um, turkeys might be 50 or 75. So don't quote me on all those, but, um, so if, but if you are in a large scale production, um, those plans are required and then they have to be audited every two years. Um, and as I mentioned before, we recommend it as best practice for any size operation. Um, I've even been teaching actually a horse biosecurity class extension course online in the winters. And I um, use the same basic principles um, for horse farms. Um, and any speed breed animal species could use the same um, principles because they are principles, right? You know, how are you training your people? Who is person in charge of biosecurity? How do you handle mortality? How do you handle uh, morbidity? Um, it, it, all of the principles apply everywhere. Um, but the challenge with the outreach for the MPIV biosecurity plans was, uh, as I mentioned earlier already, was um, the challenge of getting producers to actually write a plan. Um, they, many of them had the perception that it needed to be this big, large formal document and that there were specific things that were required to be written in it. Um, but we couldn't emphasize enough to write in the plan what they actually do, not what they thought we wanted to read. 
That that is a huge problem with any kind of quality assurance planning. Yes, absolutely. And so um I, I wish I would have had the time to literally sit with every producer and just interview them and then record it and then it would be transcribed. Because if I was to ask them the question, okay, what is your protocol for entering this barn and your protocol for entering this barn and your protocol for entering this barn, they would be able to explain it right away. And then it would be written and it would be done for them. But when they had to actually type it up themselves, they were overthinking it. They were thinking that it was going to be knowing it was going to be audited. They felt like they were being judged, um, which they, they weren't being judged. They just needed to write what they were doing. <laughs> um, and so that was actually one of the bigger challenges with any of that outreach. Um, the other challenge was, again, plain speaking, taking that language um, from NPIP and making it and applying it to each specific species because NPIP was written for all poultry. You know, they couldn't specify which, you know, was it specifically for turkeys? Was it specifically for upland game birds or was it specifically for broilers? Um, it, it was very inclusive language. Um, and so sometimes the producers were having troubles translating the the text to what that really meant for them. Hmm. That makes a lot of sense. So it sounds like a lot of the work is centered around kind of teaching people how to be teachers or teaching people how to explain what they do, not only in a written plan, but also to anyone who works on their farm. Uh, I know you've come up with some innovative tools, uh, for example, the Biosecure Entry Education Trailer. Um, and you mentioned uh, sending out those kits to do some kind of virtual biosecurity exercises. Could you speak a little bit about that? It sounds fantastic. Research is pretty solid that experiential learning is what helps the majority of people in this world learn most effectively. Um, so having the Biosecure Entry Education Trailer, or BEAT as we call it, um, it's it's an 18-foot enclosed car trailer. So it's a mobile classroom. Um, and we can set it up for as a poultry Danish entry, we can set it up as a swine entry. We can set it up as a feed room on a cattle, ya uh, cattle yard. Um, we've set it up as a backyard shed for rabbits. Um, so it's pretty much a blank slate with furniture in it that can move. So we can make it into whatever we need it to be. Um, uh, we also use Glowgerm a lot in that, um, especially in the beet trailer, um, and a lot of times we do it as a trick. <laughs> we tell people to put hand sanitizer on, um, which is a lot more believable now since the pandemic. Um, and then we just go about our teaching exercise. And then 20 minutes later, we pull out our blacklight. And it's amazing where people have put their hands, um, even just on their bodies um, or on the, in the, inside the trailer. So um, it's kind of a... Uh, rude awakening for a lot of them. Um, my favorite is when guys are standing around and they have their arms crossed and then they start doing this, you know, cause they're pondering things or they're thinking, or they're engaged in the conversation. That's just their natural posture. Right. Um, and then the guys with the goatees, they sit and stroke the hair. And then when we take the black light out their their hair just glows and their chin is just bright because there's glow germ all over it. Um, so just even having that experience of seeing 
where the hypothetical germs would be moving um, is quite impactful, actually, for a lot of people. Um, the trailer will never be clean again because there's going to be glow germ everywhere all the time. Uh, but it just helps make our point, I think, even more impactful um, that that's there. Um, so as I mentioned, we have 4-H um, curriculum for nine different species. All of them have used that trailer um, to do their teaching. Um, we've gone to um, swine operations from their truck drivers have gone through the trailer. Their um, front office staff have gone through the trailer so that they all have an understanding about what each other are experiencing. Um, you know, front office staff and even um, leadership within a company needs to know what biosecurity is so that they can understand the expense of the PPE that needs to be continuously purchased. They need to know the expense of all of the cleaning and disinfectant solutions. They need to know the expense of the extra 10 or 20 minutes that a person might be on the clock to do those steps um, thoroughly. So um, that example was really phenomenal to watch everybody from the company going through the trailer um, as a learning experience. Um, the, the simulation, as far as the candies go, that was actually a derivative of a different simulation that we had created using colored white rice um, uh, to demonstrate really how disease particles can move from one farm, one farm yard, farm equipment to another farm, to a community um, common area. Um, and then we would throw in a few grains of wild rice that would be black. Um, as the disease particles. So there was numbers of steps that people would have to go through and move things around and they could add more white rice because they had showered. Um, so then the, that was helping wash away and dilute the colors that was moving around. Um, but once the pandemic hit, and so that was an in-person demonstration, but it took a lot of time on our part, um, but it was very, very effective. Uh, and then when the pandemic hit was kind of when we were in the thick of using this rice simulation. Um, and so we were asked, how can we send this out to our producers? So then that's when we switched it to candy. But that makes it way more fun <laughs> <laughs> to, to eat the chocolate candies and the Skittles and the runts and all of those things. Um, but that also made it more friendly for different audiences. You know, the kids could be involved. Um, we've sent it out to um, high school agriculture teachers that have been able to use it. They actually will do it on their last week of school. Um, so they're still teaching, but they're still having fun with their students during those last few days. So um, it seems super simple, um, but it took a lot of effort to figure it out. But now that we kind of have it as a program, um, we can easily send it and launch it and we have an ingredient list and people can just um, go buy those supplies right offhand or it might be stuff they have on hand at home already. So um, just trying to keep it relevant and interactive um, and on people's minds. I love that. I love how creative and fun that is. You know, sometimes these topics can be kind of dry for some people and, and particularly the younger uh, audience. That's a wonderful way to get them involved. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. 
So aside from disease outbreaks, are you involved in emergency planning for other scenarios such as natural natural disasters, uh, utility outages? Uh, in the pandemic, we saw a lot of labor shortages that would shut our processing plants and we'd see animals left in the field. Um, how has that uh, kind of changed your role over the last few years having, having to deal with that? I wish I had more time to put towards those efforts. <laughs> yes. It, was, um, it should have been a completely foreseeable issue, but we were all blindsided by it. Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, and as a team of livestock educators, um, you know, I, I have colleagues that are swine educators, dairy, beef, um, commercial honeybees, um, as well as our farm safety um, educators. So as a team, we collectively... Um, tried to handle that together um, because we were all experiencing different challenges in our respective industries, but a lot of the materials that we could put together were um, kind of universal. Um, we also have the benefit in extension of having centers. So you mentioned that I was with the College of Agriculture, Food, Natural Resource Sciences. Well, we also have family development. Um, we also have youth development, which is our 4-H programming. And um, in our family development, we have people there who helped us with materials about how to handle your family living expenses when you've had a wage decrease. So we could take their resources to share with our audience. Um, we could take, um, you know, our SNAP educators who are teaching nutrition um, for, um, for a supplemental nutrition assistance program. Um, the SNAP educators could help us reach um, our folks who were temporarily laid off because of processing or farms were shut down. Um, and on the flip side, we could also help them to say, this is why the food shortages are happening. Uh, we could explain to them a little bit more in depth, you know, sans the media, what they were hearing, but we could give them more detail. Um, so that collaboration just throughout extension as a whole was e extremely valuable um, during the pandemic. Um, and even now where I'm turning to colleagues in um, our, our um, family development, also it's about mental health resources. You know, how can, um, what are some re resilience resources? Um, what are some resources on, um, anticipatory stress. Um, you know, our producers are, they're anticipating this, you know, and that has an effect on them. Um, even though we're really only at four or five cases right now, this fall, everybody else is, ooh, they're getting nervous. Right. And so, um, I can share their resources with my audience, um, to help them, um, better prepare for what's coming and to better handle what they're experiencing. What a brilliant idea to collaborate like that with those other departments. I mean, as much as extension is typically geared towards the animals, we don't always remember, you know, the needs of, of the people who raise those animals, especially down to such basic needs as, you know, mental health and food insecurity. That's incredible. Um, I can see why you want to spend more time on that work. I, I, yes, I, and I wish I had more time to do that um, because we could help with more natural disasters. Um, uh, we had a farm that was um, hit with high path in the spring um, that was in their composting phase. So they had their compost windrows set up in their barns and then they had straight line winds take their barns completely down. So they had these stressors stacking on top of one another and 
um, you know, what can we do to help? What can we do to encourage them to seek help or to um, just manage their day to day and, and become stronger as a result of the crisis that they dealt with. So I wish I could take credit for all of that, but I can't. <laughs> um, but I'm so happy that we are so collaborative in Extension um, that that we do help each other out, even though it's not our specific lane. You know, we might not even be on the same highway system, yes. but we figure out a way to meet and then, and then we can share those resources. Yes. So. I would expect that people across those departments may not even have the same views on agriculture as we do, but they do have the same views on, you know, being a good neighbor and helping each other and the value of, you know, humans. So that's pretty incredible. I love that idea for a collaborative extension program. Very cool. It is time to our famous three. A worldwide leader in animal nutrition, Adaseo's portfolio of products includes methionine, the full range of vitamins, enzymes, organic selenium, probiotics, mycotoxin management strategies, and palatability products. With such a diverse offering, Adaseo supports its customers with a broad range of expertise, tools, and services to help them maintain a competitive advantage. Adaseo, fueling predictable profits. To learn more, visit Adaseo at www.adaseo.com. I'm looking at our time, and I wanted to ask you a few questions before we wrap up on uh, resources. So particularly on the backyard flock side, we don't see a lot of resources for those folks. So I wanted to ask you if you have any favorite books, websites, or other resources that you'd recommend. They don't necessarily have to be just for backyard poultry folks, but something that would be accessible to that portion of our audience. Well, I'm quite partial to the things I've done <laughs> on backyard poultry. Um, on the UMN Poultry YouTube channel, we do have several short um I call them educational shorts, so they're less than five minutes long. Um, uh, related to biosecurity, you know, basics of backyard biosecurity, um, basics for taking your birds to an exhibition or a show or a sale or a swap. Um, there's a basically a four video series on that. Um, what basic anatomy is for a chicken in internal and external anatomy. Um, we had a veterinary student um, who helped put that video together and um, it's, it's fantastic. Um, it's a great introduction. If you're a little squeamish, you might not want to watch it, but if you're interested and you're curious, you know, that's, you can see what a normal um, chicken body looks like inside and outside. Um, there's also videos on what to do if you have a sick chicken and you want to send it to our diagnostics laboratory um, to have it necropsied because you're curious about what's truly going on in your flock. Um, so there are some basics specific to like poultry health. Um, we do have a few others that um, like basics of nutrition. Dr. Sally Knoll has a half hour lecture on basic nutrition for your backyard poultry. Um, so there's things like that um, that are available on our website. I wish I had, again, more time to focus on building that library, but that's not necessarily my programmatic um, emphasis. Um, there's also the National Extension System has a small flocks um, page, and it's mostly facilitated by um, 
somebody at the University of Kentucky, but there's a wide, wide range of resources there. Um, and I can get you that website. It is poultry.extension.org. Um, and so it's the small and backyard poultry um, extension page. So it's a, na a nationwide system. So they have web monthly webinars on fascinating topics. There's, well, what I think are fascinating topics like manure management for your small flock. Um, should you be putting your manure and your litter from your small flock on your gardens that you're growing fruits and vegetables? Well, technically no, but they are going to tell you how to do that and how to manage your um how to manage your manure piles. Um, there's some webinars coming up next month on, oh, that is litter management, um, how to make feed at home for your flocks. So there's lots of cool and interesting stuff there. There's a library of past webinars. There's lots and lots of articles ranging from nutrition to management to showing to breeds. Um, the the ever questionable why is my hen crowing <laughs> question um, <laughs> so that that poultry.extension.org is actually a really great resource um and if and if our university of minnesota website doesn't have that information i'll usually turn to that um i also share a lot of their resources on our social media pages as well so um those are my favorite um again of course i'm obviously partial to extension resources and university resources so even when you do a Google search for a question, put in extension in the search bar and it will lead you to um, university research-based information rather than, you know, hearsay of what might be happening on social media. So That is wonderful advice. Great advice on using that search term as well as recommending those resources. Thank you. Um, when you're not focusing on programs for biosecurity and disaster management, doing anything else, is there a book, resource, website, podcast outside your field that you'd like to recommend to our audience? We're all looking for new things to read and watch and listen to. Literally outside of poultry, um, I've been listening to a lot of podcasts by Adam Grant. Um, I'm also reading his book called Think Again. Um, and it's essentially the book is focused on holding power in knowing what you don't know. Um, I, I'm still a student at age 42, obviously. Um, and I'm a student in just life and just learning things and being comfortable with not knowing what you don't know. Um, and, and keeping that in inquisitive nature. Um, so that's what his book is talking about. He's an organizational psychologist. Um, and then his podcast is, um, mostly about work and how to sort of shift your mind at work, um, which really helps me be able to engage different audiences. You know, I can engage and, and turn on to work with our producers, to work with kids, and then the next hour go work with regulators. Um, so those are, um, that's what I listen to on my commute, at least. Great recommendation. Yeah, it's it's pretty good. Yeah. I, I do kind of geek out a little bit about it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it sounds, it sounds like a good podcast. Uh, you mentioned, you know, kind of the you know, shifting your, your mind frame and, and thinking about, you know, teaching differently to different people. We always ask this last question to each guest, and it actually flows perfectly into it. Um, we just want you to think about someone you think of as successful, and it could be, you know, what makes someone successful at 
creating and executing a biosecurity program? What sort of mindset does that person have? Could you speak a little bit about that? So I would consider a successful biosecurity plan, meaning it is implemented like 98% of the time. Um, I think that's a really tall order, specifically referring even to the research I'm doing for my PhD. 98% of the time is a, definitely a tall order. Um, but for a person to engage in successful biosecurity um, or a farm to have successful biosecurity, um, I think that open mindset is what's going to be the key um, because they can have it in their mind's eye that they want it a particular way. Um, but needing to be open-minded is going to be essential for the person who physically might not be able to do a particular task in the protocol. Um, for example, straddling a bench. Maybe that person can't physically straddle a bench. So what kind of modifications can be made that are acceptable, but appropriate for that particular person? Um, same thing goes with something we call desire paths. And the best thing to explain that is at, at any university, there's a large green space, right? It's just empty lawn. Um, and then on the first snow, then you see tracks going through the snow that are like cutting through diagonally or they're, they're taking a shortcut because they don't, that person doesn't want to walk on the sidewalk, which goes like the long way around. They're going to take a more direct route. So that's called a desire path. Um, and so again, going back to that person who's developing the protocols for biosecurity might want to done a specific way. They're the ones paving that sidewalk on the outside of the, of the lawn. But the employee or the person actually having to do those protocols might see a more direct route. Um, so being open-minded for the person writing those protocols to hear those desire paths um, and then being able to come up with a compromise. Okay, I see that this is a more direct route. Can we just add an extra hand washing here and then you can go there? So that open-mindedness um, because you're going to get more compliance if the farm workers are have a more direct route, um, there'll be a higher rate of compliance that hopefully you will reach that 98%. Um, so, yeah, so that's where I would see a person being successful with a biosecurity plan is being open-minded um, and, and reassessing as needed. And it's not every year or every other year when their plan is being audited. It's like, a monthly check-in or a quarterly check-in, especially with the people that are doing the procedures. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. You are not just writing the biosecurity plan for yourself. You're writing it for everyone who is coming into that facility, right down to you know mechanics, temporary labor, people you might not even expect to need to get into that facility. Yep, exactly. Yes. Takes a lot of thought for sure. Well, before we go, as a take-home message, if you could tell our audience one thing about biosecurity, what would you tell them? I know it's a tough question. question. It is a great <laughs> question, though. Biosecurity on your premises will never be the same every day because risks risk will change um, and shift throughout the year, obviously. Um, risk will change because of diseases that are existent in your flock. 
risk will change with visitors. <laughs> risk will change um, with new employees. Um, and so understanding and being aware of that risk every day is as important as having a plan. Um, because if the plan doesn't address the risk, there's no plan. Mm, excellent advice. Thank you so much for coming on the Poultry Podcast Show and sharing your knowledge and experience with us. Um, we really appreciate it. Best of luck to you with the remainder of your doctoral studies. Hopefully they wrap up quickly and as painlessly as possible. I hope so. <laughs> Thank you so much, Abby. Thank you. Thank you.